Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1 for our time of study in the Word uh, this morning. We're beginning this morning our series through the Gospel of John, and this morning my goal is to cover verses 1 through 13, and the title of the message is How Christ Reveals Those born of God, how Christ reveals those born of God. Just imagine, uh, for the sake of illustration, that the electricity completely goes off inside this church auditorium, leaving all of us in this room completely in the dark. And imagine that in that darkness, all of us are sitting here, and half of you are smiling, and the other half of you are frowning. Okay, which is about the breakdown right now, as I can tell. But imagine that is the case. How would I go about finding out which of you are smiling and which of you are frowning? Well, I would try to introduce light into this room in some way. Perhaps I would bring a flashlight uh, in this room and I would shine it upon you, and that flashlight would make you visible and reveal who the smilers are and who the frowners are. And I want you to keep that image in mind as we go through the message this morning, because in a similar way, our darkened world is filled with only two groups of people those who are being born of God and those who are not. And this morning, we're going to learn how God has used his son, Jesus Christ, to illuminate who is who. Today, we begin our study of the gospel of John, a gospel that is uh, probably a number of Christians' favorite book. It's a gospel, a book of the Bible that seems to have something for everyone. The commentator Leon Morris says that if you liken the gospel of John to a pool of water, it is, and I quote, a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. It is a book that has much for the brand new believer that he can understand, and a book that will challenge the most mature saints of God with its many mysteries. For anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time, there is something familiar and simple about almost everything in the Gospel of John. And yet, most would agree that the Gospel of John is the deepest of the four Gospels. No matter how much you study this gospel, you're always left with the feeling that you are but a child who is knee deep in a vast ocean of truth and mysteries that are still yet to be discovered. As for who wrote this gospel, uh, we're operating off the Solid assumption that the Apostle John is the writer for reasons that will become evident as this gospel unfolds. As for when John wrote this gospel, as I looked at the different commentators, uh, the guesses range anywhere from A.D. 70 to A.D. 100. Uh, Virtually everyone is agreed that of the four gospels, this is the last of the gospels that was written in the first century. As for what happens in our passage that we're going to be looking at today, sometimes we tend to read the first verses of the Gospel of John and sort of take it as a set of philosophical and theological propositions, but upon closer inspection, we see that John is actually telling us a story. He is telling us the true story about how it came to be that Jesus Christ reveals God to people and how he, at the same time, illuminates the true nature of all people, especially those 
who have truly been born of God. And as we go through these verses, verses 1 through 13 this morning, we're going to observe six truths, six truths that John gives us to explain how it happens that Christ reveals those who are born of God. And the first of these truths takes us all the way back to the very, very beginning. Truth number one, the Word was God with God at the very beginning. The Word was God with God at the very beginning. Observe what John says in verses 1 and 2. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The beginning that John is speaking about here is the beginning that is spoken about in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1.1, we find the words that open the Bible In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here in John 1.1, John is telling us that in the beginning, in that beginning, that the book of Genesis starts with, was already the Word. Three times in John 1.1, John refers to Jesus as the Word or the Greek word is logos, and this title has provoked a lot of great discussion about John's intended meaning in using this word logos to describe Jesus. Some would point to the notion of the logos that existed in Greek thought during John's day. Uh, Closer to the truth, many would point to the Old Testament where We find in passage after passage, we're taught that the word of God is the source of creation and salvation and even judgment. For example, you can write these references down in Psalm 33, 6, we're told that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. In Psalm 107, verse 20, we're told that when God's people were on the brink of death, God, quote, sent his word and healed them. Beyond that, many times in the Old Testament, we see language again and again saying, then the word of the Lord came to someone, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hosea or Micah, and so forth. And right here in John 1.1, John is telling us that the word of the Lord that we see in the Old Testament was Jesus. Beyond that, think for a moment about why we use words. Just as we use words to communicate what is on our minds and on our hearts, John is telling us that Jesus is the perfect expression of the Father's mind. In calling Jesus the Word here, John is telling us that Jesus does more than simply speak God's words, but that he himself is God's Word. He doesn't just speak the truth, as he's going to tell us later in this gospel. He is the truth. And he's not just a word from God, But the word, in other words, the ultimate word, the ultimate message from God to man. Jesus is the perfect expression of the heart and the mind of God, the one through whom God has chosen to communicate himself to the world. So if you want to know God, if you want to know the Father, know Jesus And John is telling us here in verse 1 that in the beginning was the Word. John doesn't say in the beginning became the Word. He's saying when you go back to the very beginning spoken about in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, before anything else came to be, you find that the Word 
already was. And not only do you discover that the word was already in existence at that very beginning, but John also says in verse 1, look at the text, and the word was with God. And the preposition translated with here literally means toward, teaching us that the word was in a relationship with God, facing toward God, a relationship that was characterized by towardness, by intimacy and warm exchange. You can paraphrase this as saying, and the word was at home with God in intimate relationship with God. And not only was the word in this sort of relationship with God, but John then says, look at the text, and the word was God. There's no higher description of Jesus than the description that we find here. The word was God. In making this statement, John is without any doubt, affirming the full deity of Jesus Christ. And he's also telling us that there is more to God than the Word, but he is telling us that the Word was fully God. As the commentator Tasker says, and I quote, the Word does not by himself make up the entire Godhead, but the divinity that belongs to the rest of the Godhead belongs also to him. The Word was God. Moving on to verse 2, John restates the relationship that existed between the Word and God by saying he was in the beginning with or literally toward God. So it's interesting to note that John doesn't choose to state the truth of Jesus' deity twice, although he could have, but he states the relationality of Jesus with the Father twice in these first two verses because evidently he believes it's very important for us to understand this relationship as we begin reading this book. What we learn here in verse 2 is not just something about the Word, but we learn something about the triune God. We learn that God is a communal being who exists in relationship between the three members of the Trinity, and John is preparing us to understand that creation and salvation is merely an explosion of that relationship and a desire to bring others into the good of that relationship. When I was in the fourth grade at a public school in the state of Georgia, I remember us having to recite a poem entitled The Creation, written by James Weldon Johnson. And... Uh, The poem has a lot to commend it. It still is in my memory to this day. But the poem begins with these words. And God stepped out on space and he looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. It's a beautiful poem in many ways, but on this one point, it's wrong God wasn't lonely. God did not create mankind to supply something that was deficient in himself. But because he wanted to create beings who could be brought into the sweetness of the fellowship between the members of the Trinity. And it is the sweetness of this fellowship that gets double mention here in the first two verses of John's gospel. So in summary, uh, we are only, I think, 18 words into the gospel of John, and we've already learned a number of things about Jesus. We've learned that he is God's ultimate word through which he communicates himself. We've learned that 
Jesus was already in existence at the very beginning of Genesis 1.1. We've learned that he was already in relationship with God at the very beginning, and we learned that he was God from the very beginning. John could have written his gospel in a way that left us in suspense about the identity of Jesus, and then he could have divulged his identity later in the gospel, but that's not what he chooses to do. He removes all suspense. He wants us to know right away the full truth about Jesus so that from this point forward, as we work our way through the gospel of John, we can appreciate all that happens in this gospel in the light of these truths about him. Now, when you and I hear the words and the beginning, we naturally think of Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John's mind goes there also, and this brings us to the second truth that John states to explain how Jesus Christ, the Word of God, reveals those who are born of God. Truth number two, let's state it this way, all things were created through the Word. All things were created through the Word. Observe what John says in verse 3. He says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. When John speaks of all things, he is speaking of everything that has ever existed. The verb he uses speaks of things that at one point did not exist, but then at some point came into existence. Regarding all such things, John says, all things came into being through him. And the use of the word through is important here. It communicates to us that the Father, God the Father, is the creator, but that all of his creative work was done through Jesus. And there was no element of the Father's creative work that was not done through him. And if you're wondering if John really means what he has just said, he states the same truth negatively and says, look at verse 3, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John's point is there is not a single atom in our universe that was not brought into being through Christ. If there were something in our universe that was not created by Jesus, then Jesus would not have authority over those things or those atoms. Everything that exists has come into being and stays in existence through him. Every star in the heavens, including the sun and And the moon and every planet in our solar system, Jesus created the oceans and the rivers and the seas and all that live in them. He created every animal on the land and every bird that flies in the heavens. And he created every tree and every plant of every sort, every angel in heaven and every angel that has fallen from heaven has come into being through him. Even you and everyone that you love has come into being through him. The air that you are breathing right now was created by him along with every organ in your body. There is nothing that has ever come into existence that Jesus himself did not bring into existence. This is actually an astounding assertion from the Apostle John that would have been utterly, unthinkably radical in his day. In the latter part of the first century, there was a popular notion that God did not create the material world because God was spirit and a material world would have been too far beneath him to create People believed that God was good, 
and that the material creation was something less than good. So they thought that what happened was that God, who is spirit, created a spirit being. And that spirit being created another spirit being. And then that spirit being created yet another spirit being who created yet another spirit being until at last there appeared many emanations from God, a spirit being who was powerful enough to create and foolish enough not to see that this would be a mistake. But John rejects all of that nonsense. And he tells us here that God created all that is in our material universe, and he did all his creative work directly through the word, Jesus Christ. John's statement here is a profound affirmation of the physical creation as something good and noble, and it prepares us for John's stunning announcement in verse 14 that we'll get to in a couple weeks when he says the word was made, what? Flesh. There's something else that John wants us to know about the word, and this brings us to the third truth that John states to explain how Jesus Christ, the word of God, reveals those who are born of God. Let's word it this way. Number three, the light of the word now shines in the darkness, which could not overcome it. The light of the word now shines in the darkness, which could not overcome it. Observe what John says in verse 4. He says, in him, in the word, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. In him, in the word was life. On one level, we kind of don't even need to be told this. This would go without saying. If all things, including all living things, came into being through him, then it must be true that in him was life. But John goes ahead and states this truth explicitly for our benefit. In him was life. Imagine this thing that we call life and think of the life that has belonged to every living plant and every living animal and every living person throughout history and realize that in him was all of that life. Scientists talk about the Big Bang and how the entire universe exploded from an almost infinitely small point. Well, John is telling us here that everything, including all of the life that you see as it grows on this earth and continues through the conception and the birth of every child originated not from an impersonal point, but from a person, Jesus Christ, the Word. And regarding this life, John says, and the life was the light of men. Keep in mind that John is still speaking in the past tense here. John is saying that the thing that gives the light of consciousness to every person is the life that was in Christ Jesus from the very beginning. All that life in him at the beginning would end up bringing about the life and the consciousness of every person from Adam and Eve forward and then eternal life to all those who would believe in him. John describes this life as the light of men. And then in verse 5, he says, and the light shines in the darkness. And you might want to underline the word shines here because it's the first time that John uses the present tense in his gospel. John is not describing now something that was only true in the past, but something that is true right now in the very moment in which he's writing in the latter part of the first century. John is saying, right now, as I write this gospel, the light is shining in the darkness through 
the preaching of the gospel as it goes forth and through those who are being made alive through faith in Christ. The light is shining. That's his announcement here. And look at verse 5. Part of the reason this light is shining right now in the darkness is, John says, the darkness did not comprehend it. It says in the New American Standard. And the Greek word that is translated comprehend in the New American Standard could mean to apprehend something in order to understand it. But this word can also mean to apprehend something with the intention of subduing what's being apprehended. And we see this very Greek word used this way in John chapter 12, verse 35. You can write that reference down where Jesus is speaking and he says, walk while you have the light that the darkness may not overtake you. And the Greek word that is translated overtake in John 12, 35 is the very same word that John uses here in John 1, 5. So I think that this is how we ought to understand the word here in verse 5. In John 1, 5, John is telling us that when Christ, who is the light of the world, came into the world, there was a great battle between the light and the darkness. And the darkness was not able to subdue the light. And he's going to tell us the story of that battle between the light and the darkness as his gospel unfolds. And yes, we're going to see that the darkness succeeded in having Christ killed upon a cross. But Christ was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And his light now shines in the world why? Because the darkness wasn't strong enough to overpower him. Amen? And we need to remember that today as the nations foment and as the darkness of this world grows ever darker. The darkness is here. It's everywhere we look. But so is the light. And the light is always more powerful than the darkness. If you have, for example, a completely dark room, but in that room is a closet with the door closed and there's a light on in that closet and you open that closet door, what happens? Does the darkness in the larger room flood into the lighted closet? No, the light from that closet, once the door is open, comes spilling in to the dark room, making the room brighter. That's what happened in the first century, and that's what will ultimately happen at the culmination of history, right? And one day I'm going to preach a series through the book of Revelation where we unfold all of that for you guys. I got an email from a pastor friend uh, of mine last night who's um, a missionary. Uh, he's attended Cornerstone before with his wife, and he is uh, pastoring a church in Kiev in the Ukraine, and they stayed behind to stay with their congregation, and he was sharing in the email how that since the war started, uh, they have, they, their church building has an underground parking garage, and that's where pretty much their congregation's been living since the war started. And then other people from the community are also living with them in that underground parking garage. And even as he was typing the email, he said, I'm like, we keep the lights off. Uh, we don't want any Russian operatives to know that we're here because they're walking through the streets and picking out targets. Uh, to be bombed, so we're carefully using flashlights to get around, um, and even as I'm typing this email, I'm in a bathroom with the lights off. So here they are, huddled together, and there's literal and spiritual darkness all around them, and yet, 
twice a day with the people of that community who are staying there with them and the members of their congregation. They're stopping to take time to read the Word of God and to exposit the Word of God and to pray and to care for one another and to receive those that God is bringing their way. Yes, there is darkness, but the light is shining. And guys, ultimately, that light will prevail. As for the light of Christ that John is speaking about here, it's, it's not that the darkness did not have advance notice that the light was coming. God even spotted the darkness, all of that, and announced the coming of the light in advance. And this brings us to the fourth truth that John states to explain how Jesus Christ, the Word of God, came to reveal those who are born of God. Number four, truth number four, God sent a man named John to testify in advance about the light. Observe what the Apostle John says in verses six through eight. He says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The Apostle John is talking here about John the Baptist. And John is telling us who John the Baptist was and who he was not. He describes him as a man sent from God. God truly sent and commissioned John the Baptist, even from the womb, on the mission to prepare the way for the Messiah and to point people to Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John tells us in verse 7 that John the Baptist came as a witness to testify about the light. And his goal in doing so was so that all might believe through him. We're going to see this clearly revealed later in this chapter. But for now, we should simply note that John the Baptist did not preach himself. The only purpose of his ministry was to testify to the truth about Jesus and his goal was so that all might believe through him, and that includes you. However, believing these things to be true about John the Baptist, we should at the same time be careful that we don't think too highly of him. As John says in verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. We have to realize that John the Baptist's ministry was a phenomenon in its day. Multitudes were going out into the wilderness to hear him preach and to be baptized by him. And there were people at the time who thought that John the Baptist was probably the Messiah. And he got this question from people a lot, are you the Messiah? And there's some evidence, even from Acts 19, that even decades later, there were still some people who followed the ministry of John the Baptist, and they viewed his ministry as worth following apart from believing in Christ. But whatever wrong notions anyone might have had about John the Baptist, the Apostle John combats such notions and is saying here that John the Baptist was not the light. He was a light, but he was not the light. He was sent by God to testify to the true light, which was Jesus. And Jesus is the true light that all of us must reckon with. And this brings us to the fifth truth that John states to explain how Jesus Christ, the word of God, reveals those who are truly born of God. Number five, this is a mouthful. Coming into the world, the illuminating light was rejected by Gentiles and Jews. Coming into the world, the illuminating light was rejected by Gentiles and by Jews. Speaking of Jesus, observe what John says in verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. This verse is actually more complicated than one might think at first glance, 
and a lot of ink has been spilled in trying to explain what John is saying here in verse 9. Thankfully, I, I think the New American Standard captures John's intent here. John here is speaking of the true light, and he's speaking of the true light as the one who has come into the world, and by his coming into the world, effectively enlightens every man. Not every English translation understands it that way, but uh, that would be the definite direction that I would lean, and that's captured nicely in the New American Standard. But the question then is, what is the nature of this enlightenment? Whatever this enlightenment is, it seems to extend to every man, and it seems attached to the coming of the light into the world. Is John speaking about the enlightenment of salvation? Maybe, but if so, how does that enlightenment apply to every man when, in fact, John's going to go on to tell us that most people rejected the light? Is John speaking about the enlightenment of general revelation that comes from Christ to all men? Uh, that's actually quite possible, though we wouldn't be able to connect that to Christ's coming into the world that John mentions here. To make a very long story short, um, I, I would agree uh, with D.A. Carson and others who understand John to be speaking here, not so much of Christ enlightening the mind and the consciousness of every person, although no doubt that happens, but of him shining upon every person and thereby making them visible for what they are. With this understanding, we can paraphrase verse 9 in this way. John is saying, There was the true light which coming into the world illuminates or brings to light every man, revealing him for what he truly is. The Greek word that is translated enlightens is the word photizo, photizo, which is the word we get our word photo uh, from. So think about what a photo does. It shows us what we look like. Sometimes we look at a photo of ourselves and we don't like it because we think we don't really look that way. Um, but the photo doesn't lie. It reveals us for what we really look like in the moment that the light of the flash hit us. And this is what Jesus does, amongst other things. In his coming into the world, he photizoed every man and woman. He shines his light upon every person in order to reveal them for what they are. Write down the reference, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul speaks about how Christ, at his second coming, will, and I quote, he will both bring to light, that's photizo, the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And it's likely that John's statement here in John 1.9 is that there is a sense, a powerful sense, in which Christ accomplished a similar illumination of people in his first coming, revealing them for what they are. As we study through John's gospel in the coming months, we're going to see how true this really is. In coming into the world, Christ exposed everyone who ever encountered him for what they really were. And you could tell what they really were based on how they ended up responding to Jesus. You can tell who were the children of Satan by how they hated the light and rejected Christ. You could tell those who loved the darkness by how they hated the light of Jesus when he shined upon them because their deeds were evil and they did not want their deeds to be exposed. And on the other 
end of the spectrum, as you read this gospel, you can tell those who were Christ's sheep by observing who heard his voice and followed him. Before Christ's coming, you may not have been able to tell the difference between those who were of his sheep and those who were of their father, the devil. But once Christ came, he has shined the light on every person and revealed them for what they are. And as D.A. Carson says, the light of Christ shines on every man and divides the human race. Those who are of their father, the devil, reject him. And those who are of Christ's sheep hear his voice and choose to believe in him and follow him. Speaking of this illumination or bringing to light of every person, John starts with the negative side and speaks of those who rejected Christ. In verse 10, John says, He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Christ came into this rebel world that is organized in opposition against God, and those who were of the world did not know him. They didn't want a relationship with him. They refused to recognize him for who he was, and so they rejected him, and they crucified him. Even worse, John says in verse 11, he came to his own, meaning his own people, his own family, his own kin, the Jews. But John says, and those who were his own did not receive him or welcome him as the Messiah that he is. Not only did they not receive him, but they outright manifested their rejection of him by crying out for his crucifixion. And thus... Christ has photizoed all of them, illuminating them all to reveal them for what they are. All those who rejected him among the Gentiles and the Jews were of their father, the devil. But not everyone rejected him. Some responded wonderfully and were thereby revealed to be ones destined for salvation, which brings us to the sixth truth and the final truth that John states to explain how Jesus Christ, the Word of God, came to reveal those who are truly born of God. Number six, those who receive the light are revealed to be born of God. Those who receive the light are revealed to be born of God. Listen to what John says in verse 12. He says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John describes those who responded rightly to Jesus as those who received him and those who believed in his name. If you're wondering what's the right way to respond to Jesus, you got it right here. Receive him and believe in his name. Welcome him as the word of God, as the life, as the light of men. Welcome him and that light into your life and believe in his name. This word translated believe is in the present tense teaching us that we should not just believe in Christ at conversion, but continue to believe in him Every day, you come to Jesus on the day of your conversion and you believe in him and then you go to bed that night, you wake up the next morning, it's like, Jesus, what do you want me to do today? And he says, believe in me. That's his call every day to continually believe in him. When you are a Christian overwhelmed by temptation, believe in his name for victory over sin. When you have sinned and you have failed, sinning against God, and your conscience is condemning you, what should you do? Believe in his name for the forgiveness of your sins. When you're faced with trials as a believer, you should believe in his name to help you endure those trials. The whole Christian life is a life of growing in believing in him. 
And John says, believing in his name, and that expression, his name, represents the sum total of his person and his character. To truly believe in Christ is not to believe in a Christ of, of your own making, but to look at the revelation of Christ in his word, to see the revelation of his person and his character in the Bible, and then to believe in him as the word of God has revealed him. And John says here in verse 12 that those who receive Christ and believe in his name in this way, he says, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus gives such ones who believe in him the right, the authority to become children of God. So evidently, God the Father and God the Son are giving out this tremendous gift to sinners who believe in Jesus and receive him into their life. He's giving them the authority to become actual children of God, who are members of God's family, whom God assumes full responsibility to love and care for through time and through all of eternity. Such persons will not only find themselves in a brand new relationship with God upon receiving Jesus and believing in him, but they'll also discover a whole new family of brothers and sisters in Christ to do life with who are all children of the same heavenly father. And what unites them all is that they have received Jesus and believed in him and have been blessed by God with the right to become fully privileged children of God. But here's a question for you. How is it that such persons believe in Christ and receive him and thus become children of God? Are those who believe in him somehow smarter than other people? For those of you that have believed in Jesus, why did you believe in Jesus? Are, are you smarter than other people? Is there something of their own doing, speaking of those who have believed in Jesus, is there something of their own doing that somehow sets them apart from the rest of humanity? Is it maybe their bloodline? Is it in their blood somehow, dictated by the bloodline from which they descended? What is it that disposes a person to receive Christ and believe in his name when others don't do that. In verse 13, John speaks of such persons, and he says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of whom? God. In other words, such persons receive Christ and believe in his name because they have received or experienced a birth, and this birth has nothing to do with the natural birth that all of us have experienced. The birth that such persons have experienced is literally, John says, not of bloods, plural, meaning not from the mingling of bloodlines as their mother and father come together in physical intimacy. Their birth is not of the will of the flesh, which some commentators take to be speaking of sexual desire. And literally, the next expression could read, nor of the will of a male, a man as opposed to a woman, which likely could speak of a man's desire for physical intimacy for the purpose of conceiving a child in the physical realm. John's point is that such persons who have received Christ and believed in his name, have experienced a birth that has nothing to do with their physical lineage. John goes on to say at the end of the verse that they were born of God by God's initiative. It is God who caused them to be born again. And such persons who have been born of God are the ones who will receive Jesus and believe in his name and thereby be given the right to become children of God. As John says, you can write this down in 1 John 5.1, 1 John 5.1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
Now think about why John would belabor this point with his threefold negative assertion. Why would he feel the need to say that such persons who receive Christ and believe in his name were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God? Well, at the very least, because John is saying that spiritual birth is something that has nothing to do with physical lineage. Think about it. Up until Christ came, the world was divided into two groups of people. The descendants of Jacob, who were known as the people of God, the people of Israel. And then there was everybody else. Yet when Christ came into the world, another division of the human race manifested itself. And you could not have predicted this division based upon physical lineage, right? If Christ came into the world and every Jew believed in him and every Gentile rejected him, then, yeah, you could have predicted that outcome based on the realities of their physical birth. But what we're going to find as the Gospel of John unfolds is what John has already stated in verse 11, and that is that Jesus came unto his own kin who were the Jews, and they did not receive him. But many will receive him from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. And whoever receives him and believes in him thereby reveals that they are the ones who are truly born of God. By the time John is writing this gospel in the latter part of the first century, there were way more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. One commentator says that by A.D. 60, there must have been 100,000 Gentile, Gentiles in the church for every Jew who was a Christian. I don't know where he got that information from. If he's only one-tenth accurate in that, then it would have been obvious to all, even by A.D. 60, that this new birth that John is speaking about has absolutely nothing to do with being a physical descendant of Abraham or of Jacob. It simply had to do with being born of God. And guys, that points us to the real division that runs through the human race, which Christ's coming into the world has exposed. The real division in the human race is not between Jew and Gentile, or between black and white, or between the rich and the poor, or between the religious and the non-religious, or between the Russians and the Ukrainians, or between the East and the West, or between the left and the right, or between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. It's a division between those who receive Christ and those who reject him which itself reveals the division between those who are born of God and those who are not. And as the gospel of John unfolds from here, we're going to see many people encountering Christ and hearing his voice and believing in him and following him. And we're also going to see many people encountering Christ and hearing his voice and hating him so much that they end up killing him. And this was part of Christ's intention in coming. Not only to shine the light of God upon all so that all may know the truth about God, but also to shine the light on every person and expose them for what they really are. Revealed by how they ended up responding to him. And so as we close, if what I've just said is really true, then that means that if you want to know the truth about you, if you want to know the truth about yourself, study the Gospel of John and let yourself be exposed under the light of Jesus. And as you do that, you'll not only discover Jesus, but you will discover 
the truth about you. As William Barclay says, we never see ourselves until we see ourselves through the eyes of Jesus. We never see what our lives are like until we see them in the light of Jesus. Jesus often drives us to God by revealing us to ourselves. And as we go through John's gospel in the coming months, I wonder who among us will be able to handle the truth that the light of Christ reveals not just about God, but about ourselves. You cannot study Christ, who is the light, without the light of Christ exposing you. So be forewarned. But you will discover as we study this gospel that you are more sinful than you ever knew before. And you're more loved by Jesus than you could have ever imagined. Ultimately, each of us will discover who we really are by observing how we respond to Jesus. We're either going to receive him and believe in his name, or we're going to reject him and hate him. And what you and I do with Jesus will turn out to be the most important thing about us. Maybe you're here this morning and you're kind of ambivalent about Jesus. But I suspect that part of your ambivalence is because you've just kept him at arm's length and refused to look too closely at him. I dare you to hang with us as we go through the Gospel of John and to read the Gospel of John on your own, even during the week, and see what you think of Jesus when you are done. My suspicion is that you will either love him or you will hate him. And I hope that you will love him and believe in him, and John would hope that as well. You see, in writing this gospel and presenting Christ to you in this gospel, John is shining a monster flashlight on you so that you will see yourself as you really are and then also see Jesus in all of his beauty so that you will then run to him and believe in him as your Lord and Savior. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John looks back on all that he's written in this gospel including what we've studied today. And he says, and I quote, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's John's heart for you as he writes this gospel, so that you might believe in Jesus and once believing in him, have eternal life. We had a sister in our church a number of years ago who grew up in a um, a home where her mom and dad were avowed atheists. They never had anything good to say about Jesus. She heard him run down all of her life. But when she came of age, she got a hold of a copy of the Gospel of John and began to read through the Gospel of John. And as she did so, she began to discover herself like she never knew herself before. And she began to discover Jesus like she had never understood him before. And by the time she was done with the book, she had believed in Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And she was thankful. She shared with me how thankful she was for the role that her parents played in provoking her interest in Jesus. But it's for people like this woman and for people like you and me that John wrote this gospel that we're going to be studying in the coming months. As John teaches us in the very first verse of this gospel, Jesus is the Word. He is God's revelation to mankind, but He's also the means by which God reveals the truth about mankind, showing people that they are sinners in need of a Savior and ultimately bringing to light those who are born of God and those who are not. And for those who are born of God, Jesus turns out to be not simply God's word to them, but he becomes their own word back to God, and he becomes their ultimate word to others. And I hope that's going to be the case for you and for me as we work through this gospel. 
Let's pray together. Lord, I just pray if there's any in this room this morning or watching through live stream who have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus, that you would touch their hearts and give them the gift of rebirth, being born again through your initiative. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts as a congregation to the fullness of the light of Jesus that is revealed through this gospel. We thank you for the light that we've been exposed to even this morning. Give us the courage, Lord, to face this light and whatever it might disclose to us about ourselves that we would not run away and shrink back into the darkness, but to move even more toward the light because this light is not just a light that reveals us for the sinners that we are, but a light of love where we will experience a love that is more pure and more profound than anything we could have ever imagined. That's the Savior that you are. And that's the Savior that is presented in this gospel. And that's the Savior that we need to see. And this is the Savior that we need to declare to the world. So reveal Christ to us, Lord. I need it. We all need it. And we ask that you would give us this gift as we work our way through this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, 